So just as a quick quick announcement, reminder, uh, so our home groups, some of them at least, start this week. And so we've started uh, out on the table on the way out. On the right, there are a stack of uh, questions that some of the groups will be using. I'm not sure which groups group I'm in will be using, and I think at least a couple others. And then if, even if you're not in a group, you can pick up one of these and it just help you uh, re-study, refocus in your own time on what we're going to talk about this morning. So that's on the table as you go out. Uh, Tom mentioned, actually Tom, just so we, you could be praying for Tom, he's preaching at the, he left, because he's, I think he's gone, he's preaching at the EFC church right, right there this morning. Uh, so you can be praying for him. He mentioned that you uh, many of us would remember where we were when, at the time of 9-11. Now, this might sound strange at first, but I remember where I was, and it, it was in the evening. I was, it, it was, now, you're saying, well, 9-11 happened in the morning, the, but I was in another country, another time zone. I was in Thailand, and the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was uh, coincidentally, or not, uh, uh, a young lady that I was tr- thinking about calling. Just I, th- I need to call Lek was her name. And she's on the phone, because I had some things I had to talk to her about. And so she's calling me, and I pick up the phone, and I start right in on what I want to talk to her about. And she says, oh, she's, I mean, we're speaking in Thai, and I'm not, I was never that great in it, so there's some communication going on here. But she says, no, you, there was a plane crash. And, and I said, uh, okay, there's plane crashes all the time, but hey, we need to talk about what I need to talk about. You know, I'm doing some research here at the university, and she was going to help me with it. And so uh, it went on like that for a little bit until she under, so she said, no, you need to go turn on your TV and see what's happening. And so I, I got it. My focus shifted and I left the thing I was concerned about and I went and saw uh, what was happening in, in the world. And, and today I, I want to try to change our focus maybe a little bit. Uh, do you remember those Magic Eye 3D pictures? There were books of them. Here, here's one of them. Can you, can you see what it is? You need to uh, see the 3D image. You need to let your eyes go a little blurry. But then once you get it, you can... Is it that? Is it that? Are you seeing it? It's not funny. Well, it might be funny. Uh, let your eyes go a little blurry, and then you can see it. And then, and then it's just there, and it's right in front of you. It's obvious once you can see it. Can anyone see uh, what it is? Anyone? Oh, that's a, it's a hard one. Somebody saw it earlier. Michael saw it. Did anybody see it? I'll give you a second. Let me see if I can see it. I can see it on my computer. And, uh... All right. Well, it's, uh, it's Jesus on the cross. Uh, so, and that doesn't really help you see it. If you can't see it, you can't see it. Uh, now, if you can't see it, that can be a little frustrating, right? You need to move on because they're not going to listen to me. They're going <laughs> to go back. Okay, thank you. All right. If you want. Uh... And so if you can't see it, and apparently no one could, uh, it can be a little frustrating. And that brings us uh, to the message for today. Uh, for some, it could be a little frustrating. Because I'm going to ask you to see God in a new way. 
Now, don't get nervous. We're not going to take out our Bibles, and I'm not going to ask you to turn them sideways and blur your eyes and try to see a picture of God. I'm not even going to read a passage and then say, uh, let's look at for the hidden meaning about God in this passage. What we'll read this morning is very uh, clear. But in some ways, it's very different from how we normally think about God, how we normally picture God. And to help that picture begin to come into focus, I want to look at, at a question that I've often heard uh, people ask. They ask, why is the God of the Old Testament so harsh? We've been studying the Old Testament. We've seen God. Why does God destroy so many different groups of people? They point to the flood. That was a, that was a big one, right? Only one family saved, Noah and his family. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities wiped out. Or, or how many know any Canaanites or Amorites or Amalekites or Jebusites? We don't even know these people anymore. They've been wiped out, destroyed. They're gone from history, and these are just a few. Why was God so harsh on so many groups of people? And, and the basic answer the Bible gives is found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This verse is specifically about the the pre-flood people, the people at the time of Noah, but it applies to everyone whom God is harsh with. Let me read it. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God is harsh because man is wicked and evil. Now, you might not like it, But I think we understand that wickedness and evil deserve to be destroyed, taken out. So we can see why God in the Old Testament was at times harsh. But that should cause us to ask another question, maybe a more uh, uh, real question. Since God destroyed some evil people, why didn't God destroy his evil people, Israel? They were at many times no better than the pagan nations that surrounded them. In fact, you could say that because they had uh, God, they had uh, God's presence, the temple, they had the law, they had experienced God like no other nation, that they deserved even greater punishment than the other nations. I mean, if you're a teacher and you spend some time with the kids lecturing about the evils of coming in late to class, being tardy. And then one day, two students come in late, no excuses. One who's heard your lecture on lateness, and one, a new student, who hasn't. Which deserves the greater punishment? You would think the older student who's been given the lectures, who knows the evils of tardiness. So why does God save His people who've heard the lectures, and yet destroy others who have not? So we might want to consider asking the question, why does God act for the benefit, for the good of his people? Why is God in both the Old and New Testament so merciful? Why does he spare anyone? Because everyone, including Israel, including you, including me, are wicked and evil and sinful people. Now last week, if you were here, we partially answered this question, okay? Remember, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. These are God's words to his people as they suffered for their sin. Remember, there was some suffering that Israel went through for their sin. They just weren't wiped out. And eventually they received the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
We rejoiced in that last week. God acts for the good of His sinful people because of His steadfast love, His never-ending mercy, His great faithfulness. Yes and yes, hallelujah. But, and this is what I want us to see this morning, that's not the whole picture. It doesn't answer the question why God destroyed some sinful people, but not His sinful people. Why did wicked, evil Israel experience His love and mercy and faithfulness and forgiveness while Sodom and Gomorrah was wiped out? Now for some, the answer is going to be different from what you would expect. And it's going to, but I think it's going to help us see God in a different, hopefully fuller, uh, 3D sort of way. Now this answer can be found throughout Scripture in many places, but one of the main places we find it is uh, clearly stated is in the book of Ezekiel. That's our book we're in in our reading for this week. If you have a Bible, turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. We'll have the verses up there, but it's good to look at them in front of you as well. That's where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. Just a little background, Ezekiel was a prophet and Ezekiel was a priest. He prophesied in the southern kingdom. Remember, for a number of several hundred years, the north is already gone. They've been uh, taken away into exile by the Assyrian Empire. Now, the south has been, uh, Ezekiel prophesied before and after they experienced defeat under the Babylonian Empire, and Ezekiel and many others are taken into exile. And so what Ezekiel writes, he writes in chapter 36 to those who are in exile. They're not in their land. Now, the book of Ezekiel, if you've read it, how many, how many, uh, I won't do this, I won't embarrass me, uh, or you. The book of Ezekiel, at many times, if you've read it ever, is a little bit weird, Right? Strange. It's filled with a lot of strange visions, images, some strange actions. At times, uh, you see Ezekiel paralyzed, lying motionless on his side for months, even years at a time. At one point, his tongue is basically stuck to the roof of his mouth, so he cannot speak. But then when he speaks, he talks about visions that are, (laughs) to say the least, difficult to understand. Wheels within wheels, and eyes on wheels, and valleys of dry bones that that come to life. I've heard all kinds of explanations for these strange visions that we find in Ezekiel, uh, up to and including UFOs and extraterrestrials. And unfortunately, we don't really have time to, to flesh these out. But for those who want to do some personal study in this book on these visions, you should you should know that the visions and the actions you read about in this book, are meant to display what we were singing about in our last song, the glory of God, which not coincidentally brings us to our question, why does God act for the good of his people? And the answer the Bible gives is for the glory of God, for his glory. And it's seen clearly in Ezekiel chapter 36. This is actually pretty wild. Writing to the exiles, beginning in verse 16, he says, the word of the, Ezekiel says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her minstrel impurity. Thanks for that image. That's the image that God gives Ezekiel. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols 
with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. So God says he poured out his wrath on Israel for their idolatry, for their immorality, scattering them among the nations. And you've been with us during, if you've been with us during our study through the Old Testament, this really makes total sense why God does this. God's people had been given chance after chance after chance. They'd been given his word. They'd been given prophets and priests and the temple. But they continued in their sin. They were just like the surrounding nations, if not worse. So the fact that God is harsh with them should come as no surprise. It fits in with the harshness, maybe, of Sodom and Gomorrah, of the flood, of other things. But as a result of their justifiable punishment, verse 20 says this. Ezekiel, speaking for the Lord again, but when they came to the nations, they, the the exiles, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they, they had to go out of his land. Now, this doesn't mean when the exiles uh, left the land, they went to different places blaspheming the name of the Lord, cursing God. It means that that when the people of other nations saw that Israel had been defeated and were sent into exile, they said, well, their God must not be very powerful. Their God must be uh, less powerful than the gods of Babylon, than our gods. The God of Israel must be weak and powerless. And in verse 21, God responds, But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. God had concern for what? For his holy name, his reputation among the nations, his glory. And in verses 22 and 23, God gives Ezekiel a message to the Israel in exile. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not, if you have a Bible, you might underline not, for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God's going to act, he says, not for the sake of his wicked, sinful people who are, uh, who are punished by, and sent into exile. They don't deserve it, but for the sake of his holy name. God's going to do something so that the nations will know that He is the Lord. These are similar words. Uh, there are similar words to these found throughout the book of Ezekiel. If you read it, it's practically in every chapter. Uh, uh, God desires that the nations know that He is God, that He is the Lord. God desires that all people see His glory. And so He's going to vindicate. He's going to show His righteousness, His holiness before the nations. Now, this is where our picture of God comes into uh, greater focus. This is where we see why God acts for the benefit of his sinful people. Why God bestows, why he gives his love and mercy and grace, his kindness, why he gives it to them. He does ultimately not for them, but for his own glory. Now, you may struggle with that answer. 
This isn't the way we usually think about God, is it? We don't see God as one who acts not for our sake, but for His. Because we tend to read our Bibles uh, from our perspective, the human perspective. We see God showing love and mercy and, and on Israel and on us, and we think it's because we deserve it more than others. We're, you know, we're sinners, but they're worse than us, right? Some think they deserve it because of their good works. So I do more good works than they do. I, I do more good works than bad. But even us good evangelicals can think we deserve it because uh, we put our faith in Him. Our faith becomes our work, and it earns the grace of God in our lives. We choose to trust in Him, therefore we deserve His love and His mercy. And that makes us, not Him, that makes us the central figure in His story of redemption. But Ezekiel is giving us God's perspective, which is the true perspective, by the way. And in God's perspective, God is the central figure. He says the reason God gives grace and love and mercy and forgiveness is for His glory, is to demonstrate who He is, to show forth His character to the nations. And this can leave a little bit of bad taste in our mouth. Because if any person were to act uh, for the sake of their name, for the sake of their glory, then we would rightly label that person as a self-centered so-and-so, right? Right? It's a negative characteristic for any one of us to desire and to delight in our own glory. But what we need to understand, what the Bible teaches, is that God is wholly, wholly, wholly different. Totally different. That God is totally holy, set apart, unique. He is other in a class by Himself. And we really need to get this. I, I'm not sure. Uh, we sometimes, we, we do. Sometimes we say things like this. Uh, we say things like, the difference between us and God is like the difference between us and an, an ant or, or some insect. And in making such a comparison, we think we're just showing how awesome God is, right? But notice we're comparing God to who? Ourselves. We're the, we're the, we're the big thing. We're, we're God in that comparison. But, but God has no equal. He has no comparison. God is totally different from us. Yes, I know, uh, we were created in God's image. But the important word here is created. God is as different from us as He is from an ant. Because God is the creator of both us and the ant. God is the creator of the universe. He's outside of time and space. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning And the end of time and space, totally holy and righteous and sinless. He's omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere, all the time, omnipotent, all-powerful. He is quite literally beyond comparison and beyond our understanding. We only know what He's chosen to reveal about Himself through His Word. And so it's, it's good and right that God desires and delights in his own glory. In fact, listen to this. If God didn't desire and delight in his own glory above all other things, then he would be an idolater. What's the first commandment? The first commandment is to have no other gods but before the Lord God. And if we put something, anything before God, other people, other things, 
then we are idolaters. And if God puts anything, other people, other things, even us, before His glory, then we too, He too, would be an idolater. And that's just not possible. By His very nature, God must prioritize His own glory above everything else. He must act for Himself, for His namesake. This is seen all over the Bible. God commands again and again, read the book, uh, to be worshipped and praised and honored. That's His commands. That's what, what we should be doing and obeyed and glorified. I wish we had time to look at some passage, just one, outside of Ezekiel. Isaiah 43.7 Everyone who is called by my name, the Lord says, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Do you understand that God created you for His glory? Your purpose in life, in case you were uh, confused about this, is to glorify God. God's will for your life, in case you've been praying about it, is for you to glorify Him. The ultimate purpose of creation, of your creation and all of creation, is not for your own personal pleasure and enjoyment. It's for the glory of God. And that's not my idea. It's God's idea. So the answer to the question, why does God act for the good of His sinful people, is what? For His glory. For His glory. And I hope you see why that is outstanding, amazing, uh, the best news ever for you and I. Let me restate the question and answer so it's clear. We need to rejoice in this. The fact that God acts for His own glory means that God acts for the good of His people. His glory comes when He acts for our good. God's glory is our good. Title of the message today. Ezekiel chapter 36 then goes on, after verse whatever the last one we read was, goes on to make this abundantly clear by answering the question, how does God act for the good of His people? The people, because of their sinful ways, were defeated and destroyed and sent into exile. This causes the name of God to be defamed among the nations. And God says, for the sake of His holy name, for His glory, He's going to act. And in verses 24 to 32 of Ezekiel chapter 36, we read uh, what He promises to do. And each of these promises He fulfills. He doesn't say He's going to create a big display in the sky so that the nations will see, yeah, oh, he's not going to write his name in the sky with fireworks or something, so that the nation will see that he's the Lord and give glory. Instead, God, for his own glory, promises to act for the good of his sinful people. First, God promises uh, to restore their land. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. This is the exiles. They're not in their land. They've been kicked out. Because of, they were kicked out because of their own rebellion. But God promises to bring them back, to restore them. He's acting for His glory, and the result will be their good. Then God promises to cleanse their sins. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all the idols I will cleanse you. It was their sinfulness that had got them in trouble in the, in the first place, that led to their judgment which led to God's name being profaned. And, and how will God act for His glory? He'll cleanse them. He'll take away their sins and their idolatry and their immorality. 
They can't do it themselves. But God, for His glory, will do it for them, for their good. And then God makes this most amazing uh, promise, the most amazing promise of all. This is a life a transforming. He promises to transform their lives. Verse 26 and 27, verses uh, that you might be familiar with. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove this heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. These are pretty famous verses. The, the new heart idea, the taking out the heart of, uh, uh, of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. They remind us uh, back to what we looked at in the book of Jeremiah, the new covenant when God will write his law on their hearts. God is promising to transform in a new way. His people, he's going to do that in in two ways. First, by giving them a new heart, removing this heart of stone that that only produced idolatry and immorality and replacing it with a new heart of flesh. A heart of, uh, I think, a heart for God. He's giving them a heart for himself. But that's only the beginning. God will then place within his people his Holy Spirit. And notice what the Spirit does. The Spirit causes you to walk according to the statutes and rules and law uh, to do the will of God. God will transform our, our desires by giving us His Spirit. He will enable us, enable our wills to obey Him. This is the result of the Spirit of God inside His people. And why is God doing all this? Don't forget. Don't forget the context. You know, we oftentimes just pluck these verses out, and we say, sweet, we get a new heart, new spirit. But why? Why is he doing it? This life transformation, this new heart, new spirit, are all for his glory. Our lives are being transformed that we might be people who reflect the glory of God. And there's more. God then promises that he will establish relationship with them. In verse 28, he repeats the fact that he's going to bring them back into the land. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And then he says, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. He said this before, but he's reiterating it. Their sins are cleansed, their lives transformed. And now they enter into a relationship with the living God. Again, the context, the fact that we're able to be in relationship with God, the fact that He calls us into relationship with Him is for His glory. And finally, God promises that He will bless them abundantly. Verse 29, He repeats the the cleansing of their sins, and I will deliver you from your uncleanness. And then He says, And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Still thinking about the nations. Oh, this, this, this people here, their God must not be very powerful. They're, they're having a famine. God's saying no more famine, no more disgrace. God will not only restore their land, but he will return. Uh, he, he will be their God and he will abundantly bless them. Abundant food. Why? Because God is glorified when He abundantly blesses, does good for His people. Okay? So, think about what we've seen. Remember Ezekiel's writing to these exiles, those who are being disciplined, punished, judged by the Lord for their sinful, evil, wicked idolatry and immorality. And he says to them, 
He, he didn't, nowhere did he say, uh, if you do this. He never said, uh, if, if you guys will straighten up and act right. My mom used to say that, straighten up and act right. Oh, sorry. Sorry, flashback. Oh, sorry. <laughs> he didn't say that. He just said, I'm going to give you back your land. I'm going to cleanse you of your sins. I'm going to give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And I'm going to bless your socks off. And we've read through all that God will do for his people. And it's our human tendency to think, okay, things have changed here. God is doing these things because these these people in exile, they've learned their lesson, right? God is doing it because uh, they're better now. God is doing it because finally they deserve it. But that's not what we read. God wants to be very, very clear. So he gives a reminder of why God acts for the good of his people. He makes what what I'm calling a not-for-your-sake sandwich. In verses 23 through 16 to 23 that we read, God says, I'm going to act not for your sake, but for the sake of my holy name. That's sort of the top piece of the bread there. And then in verses 24 through 30 that we just read, he says, these are the things that I'm going to do for you. Like the lettuce and tomato and pick. I don't like tomato. Throw that out. Just the nice meat and stuff in a nice sandwich. These are the great things that I'm going to do for you. And in verse 31 and 32, so this is the end, just so we don't forget why he's doing it, why he gave us all that great stuff in our sandwich, we get to the bottom piece of bread. Then you will remember your evil ways. This is just that he's given us the new spirit and the new heart. And can't we just leave it at that? Remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. Is it not for your sake? It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. God is saying, Once I do all these amazing things for you, once you're back in the land, cleansed of your sin, new heart, My spirit, when I'm your God and you're being abundantly blessed, remember from whence you came. Remember your evil ways. Don't let the fact that I've blessed you abundantly go to your head. I didn't do it. I'm not doing it to boost your self-esteem. I'm not doing it so you say, oh, we're the best among the peoples. Practice a little self-loathing for your sin and abominations. You know, sometimes people have, have made comments about our worship here, and so I would like to, Chad is really good at helping us uh, uh, practice a little self-loathing and abomination, and then turn that to, to joy in Jesus, that we don't have to stay there. And I just want to thank him, appreciate him for doing that. Always, always remember that what I do for you is not because of you, it's because of me. All that I've done for you, I've done for the sake of my holy name. Remember your sin and be ashamed. Remember, I will, I will do these things for the sake of my name. God does these good things for His people, but ultimately, they're for His glory. God's glory is our good. That was true in Ezekiel's day, and it reaches its greatest fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So let's take just a minute and focus on on the greatest good, the greatest act of goodness that God ever did for his sinful people. 
That act was sending Jesus into our world. And so the final question, why did God send Jesus into our world? We could quote John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus also said that he came to seek and to save the lost. And I would say, yes, amen, thank you, Jesus. But the question then becomes, why does God bestow love on a world that is in constant rebellion against him? Why does Jesus seek and save those, uh, those people who are in rebellion against Him, who are just like the people of Noah's day, sinful and evil and wicked? Remember, Christ died while we were yet sinners. And the answer is not found in the world. It's not found in people. The answer is found in God alone. Why did God send His Son into this world to die in our place? Why does God bestow His love and His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness on a sinful people? I would submit that he did it for the same reason we saw in Ezekiel. God sent Jesus into our world to live a sinless life, to die for the sins of a wicked, evil, sinful people, to be resurrected for the dead. Why? For his glory. For his glory. To paraphrase Ezekiel, it's not for your sake, O sinful world, that I sent Christ, but for the sake of my holy name. God bestows his love and his grace and his mercy upon you and me for his own glory. So are you saying, uh, Pastor, that God has some uh, ulterior motive in saving me? No, 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 I'm not saying that. God is saying that. We are ultimately saved by God for the glory of God. He, not we, are the star of this show. Throughout the Gospels, you hear Jesus talking about uh, the the Father being glorified in Him and how He's going to glorify the Father. One example, John chapter 17. This is the beginning of what what we call Jesus' high priestly prayer, where He's going to pray for His disciples and He's going to pray for those that would come after His disciples. He's going to pray for you and and I. And this prayer... uh, Uh, This is the beginning. This is the first verse. This is how Jesus starts his prayer. Before he's arrested and before he goes to the cross, Jesus prays, Father, the time has come. The time for my arrest, my betrayal, my arrest, my crucifixion. The time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And you know what? Uh, There was a time when when I didn't really get this verse at all or verses like it. I just kind of skipped over this. What, I don't know, what is he talking about here? Choosing instead to move down into the rest of John chapter 17 where Jesus is praying for me and for, for you and, and getting something to apply there, his love and his grace and his mercy for me. I could then, in a sense, make myself the focus. I could apply that to my life. But then, through some study of God's words, through some understanding I came to see that that creation and the covenants and the law and the sacrificial system and the prophets and the priests and everything in the New Old Testament and and Jesus coming and the New Testament and uh, the apostles going out and preaching the gospel was all for the glory of God. That the history of redemption is his story of how he redeems his people for his glory. So now when I read Jesus' prayer, Father, the time has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, I see that Jesus' death on the cross 
Jesus' death on the cross has ramifications far beyond my own personal salvation. Oh, I'm rejoicing in that, that I get that, that I get the benefits. But that the purpose of Jesus' death on the cross was ultimately to glorify God, both Father and Son. That Jesus' death on the cross would demonstrate to the world His righteousness and His holiness and His perfection by providing a way of salvation for a sinful people, a people that God has chosen. And we need to see that God's greatest act of goodness, that God's greatest act of goodness for His sinful people, uh, what's the result of that going to be? The result of that is going to be His eternal glory, that He will be glorified throughout all eternity. We've read this passage in, in different contexts, but I want to see it, us to see it in this context. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. This is a scene in heaven. It's all, it's all over. This is the end now. We're, we're done here on earth and we're looking in heaven. After this, I looked. John writes, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, because of Jesus, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their face before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. To God be the glory throughout all eternity. But now let's bring it back. This is eternity. This is what we get. But let's bring it back uh, to Riverside, California today. Quickly, uh, quickly apply this to our lives. First, I've been saying throughout the, the, the message here uh, that God glorifies himself by acting for the good of who? And not the world. His people. And so, uh, application one, if you want to receive the benefits, and they are many, they are eternity in His presence, of a glor- in the presence of a glorious God. If you want to receive the benefits of God seeking His own glory, make sure you're one of His people. Give yourself to Him. Trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Application one. Application two, live only... For the glory of God. God delights and He desires in His glory. And God has created us for that glory. And what does it mean to live for His glory? It means that that all we do and say, and so I'm saying uh, shoot for this. I'm not saying I'm there. I'm not saying any of us can reach there. I'm saying this is our goal. This is how this is our uh, the the thing we're shooting for in this life with because we have that new heart and that new spirit. In all circumstances of this temporal life, whether we are suffering from physical sickness, the death of a loved one, emotional pain, or just the, the pressures of this life. We trust in Him to glorify Himself through us. We give our lives to spend for His glory. Which means a willingness, and not just a willingness, an embracing 
a joyful embracing of whatever He brings our way. Not easy. But your life is about whatever understanding that your life is about whatever God chooses it to be. Even when you don't understand. Living for His glory. And as a part of living for His glory, third, final application, the psalmist writes this verse that gives us a a better understanding of, of missions and of witnessing. Sometimes we think we go out into the world, we share our faith, we send missionaries so people can be saved. And that's true. But that's the benefit. That's the, that's the, that's the side benefit in a sense. The, the, uh, the psalmist writes uh, this, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. Go forth from this place, application, declaring the greatness of God in your life. Tell of His great things that He's done for you. How He saved you from your sin. How He's given you a new heart. And a new spirit, how, how you can have relationship, how you have relationship with Him, how He blesses you abundantly. Declare His glory to the nations, to your friends, to your family, and to your neighbors. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray for us. I pray that, that, we, would see, uh, that we would see that you're a God who seeks after, who delights in, his own glory, and we would rejoice in that. Lord, that we would be your people, and we would, we would thank you for who you are and how your glory, when you seek your glory, Lord, we benefit amazingly. Help us to rest in that, rejoice in that, to live in that, to live for your glory, to be people who are seeking to declare your glory to, to those in our lives, Lord. I pray that today, out of today, as we leave this, this place, we would understand in a greater way who you are, just how glorious you are, and we would be seeking, uh, seeking to magnify that glory in the world you've placed us in. In Christ's name, amen.